Welcome to On Living, The Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Voice America. This is your host uh, for the show. Um, This is Leanne Nguyen talking to you from Brooklyn in New York. Well, today uh, we continue the conversation about what makes us human. Specifically, through the upcoming discussion that I will have with my guest, I want to invite you to ponder about the values and ideas that we hold about the project of becoming human, the process of developing the skills to function as human beings in this world. And I'm thinking that that should lead us straight to um, to start at uh, the point of childhood, should it not? Now, um, how we start out in life is, in my opinion, more often than not, a precursor to where we end up later on in our life. What we are given at the beginning lays the foundation for how we unfold. The equipments that we are handed, the skills that we are prompted to acquire, that we are told we have to develop in order to be prepared for life, as well as the aims that we strive for and the goals and accomplishments that we value. All of these things say something about what we as a culture, as a society hold dear. These things attest to what we decide to be important to our survival or at least our growth. Through these pursuits and agendas, we as a society say something about what defines us in our essence, in our development. So what do we try to give to our children is the question that I'm posing to you all today. Why do we teach them the things that we teach them? Is it for them or for us? What do we hold dear? What do we decide to be vital to impart to our children? The things that we try to imprint on their minds and their characters, is it for their survival or is it for our sense of our survival? If children are the future, as the cliche says, what does it say about what we cherish of our future? What does it say? about what we value and wish for in and about ourselves. You know, I remember years ago I was reading uh, Newsweek magazine and they were reporting on a uh, longitudinal study on the effects of elementary school education on um, lifetime earnings. Unfortunately, that was about, I think, seven, eight years ago, so I don't remember the authors of the study, but it, it, it stayed on my mind because that study showed that when a child receives a good elementary school education, she goes on to earn about 10 times more over her working lifetime. And the authors, the researchers in that study, I think they were a combination of economists and um, uh, child psychologists or educators, said that by that variable, um, they proposed that the, you know, we as a society should pay our elementary school teachers something like $300,000 a year in order to account for what they contribute 
potentially can contribute to the future of our citizens, for what they can contribute to the health and security of our society. Now, for the year of 2018-2019, I believe that the median annual salary for elementary school teachers in the United States of America is about $56,000. The best paid teachers get about, I think, $90,000. Those in the bottom 10% get $38,000. In contrast, the median annual salary for CEOs is $750,000. That's just pocket change compared to what those from the, the CEOs from the 100 largest companies get paid in um, 2017. And that number was $15.7 million. In the um, omnibus spending bill by the federal government that was approved uh, in 2018, billion were earmarked for military spending. That's just discretionary military spending, not the total defense budget. And on top of that, I think there was about $591 billion for non-defense spending. In total, in discretionary spending, that's about $1,300 billion. In contrast, $59 billion were given to education. And that's a 13% decrease below the annualized continuing resolution level. All right? That says something about where our priorities and values are. Now, in the past few weeks, um, you all know, those of you who live in this wretched country, that there has been a furor over the policy of separating migrant children from their parents at the southern U.S. borders. People talk about the inhumane treatment of these children. They talk about how such policy offends the values of our American society. I hear that underlying this uproar um, is a kind of cri de coeur. This is not who we are. This is not how we treat children. It's not okay to do this to children, we're all saying. Implicit in the protest against this policy, protest that we have heard from mental health professionals, from the clergy, from medical providers, is a vision of what is important, of what should be provided for or at least protected in childhood. Now, the uproar, as you know, um, has been sort of effective, at least in a temporary limited way, because um, our president has backed down from the zero tolerance policy. Uh, But, you know, there is a whole other mess going on down there about uh, how to find and then reunite those children who have been separated from their parents. And then there's a whole headache of where and how to house these children with their families uh, while they are waiting uh, legal processing. Like, yeah, you know, locking them up with their parents instead of separating them, just locking them up in the same holding facility when they have not done anything wrong, nothing criminal has been committed, uh, like that is acceptable and not harmful at all. Anyway, we liberal, educated, enlightened people, uh, we say to ourselves, you know, one step at a time, one victory at a time, let's keep up the fight, let's keep up the resistance. And the left is congratulating themselves on this small victory, while Trump supporters are just struggling, um, while the Republican Party, the ruling party, continue to work for the 1%. 
So what that they won't separate children from their parents anymore at the border? I ask you. Can we really congratulate ourselves for having woken the government up to the rights of these children at the borders? For having educated our rulers on what children need in order to be well, to feel safe, to continue their birthright, to bloom into human beings? I personally think that this whole thing is a false victory or even a diversion, because this country was founded on. This economy was dependent on separating children from their parents. What do we think happened during slavery? What do we think happens to colored men when we send them to the new Jim Crow's jail? What do we think happens in the infamous school to to prison pipeline when we where we condemn our poor colored children? And what happens in these instances that should be different from what's been happening down in Texas? By the way, you should know that separating children from their immigrant parents has been happening for a long time, well before Donald Trump showed up. Uh, it's just not reported or has not provoked the visceral reaction that it has just now. I don't know why, but I do know uh, from the years under Obama, for example, because I was uh, witness to it and working on a few cases, uh, that of of the 400,000 immigrants that um, Obama deported for each year of his presidency, uh, a lot of these 400,000 people were parents, parents to U.S.-born citizen children, and who, because of one reason or another, um, had been found unfit to stay in this country, uh, were deported. So what do you think happened in these families? These children, these parents were faced with this impossible choice of of either staying together and going back to a country that these children had never seen or known or set foot on and do not even speak the language sometimes, or continuing in the U.S., stay in the homes that your parents have bought and stay in the middle school that you have grown up in or heading for high school, uh, but saying goodbye to your parents. So where was the outrage? I still, I'm still scratching my head about that one. Now, the question of why now, why the outrage now is a deep, interesting, thorny investigation into the sadomasochistic dance between the liberal educated left and Trumpism that maybe I can reserve a whole other hour for. But it's, it's a dance. It has nothing to do with the real fight for the real suffering of real people all over America, people on the ground. It has nothing to do with the real project of truly being kind to each other. It has nothing to do with the real work of being our brother's keepers. Because as we go down south now to document the atrocities, as we get busy screaming about the latest Trump cruelty or deciphering the latest semiotics on the, from the first lady's wardrobe or, or congratulating themselves on succeeding in instilling some shame or conscience in the government and getting Trump to back down. As we're doing all of that, private contractors are netting billions of dollars in contracts for building facilities, for providing guards, uh, for, for hiring catering companies, you know, in order to feed and house uh, these immigrants in detention centers that are mushrooming all over down south. We're still tolerating or habituating to the enormous discrepancies in resources that I was talking to you about. <clears throat> we are still spending, for example, twice more on incarcerating each prisoner 
than on educating a child. That's just one example of the stats in Oklahoma. In California, the amount that we spend on each prisoner per year is equivalent to the tuition of Stanford University for one child. What would make society safer? <laughs> you know, what would make us prosper better and live longer? You know, when I when I look at these numbers, at these facts, you know, there's a, a favorite phrase I learned in ESL that comes to mind, and, and that phrase is, you know, what the hell? Um, anyway, so instead of talking about all of that for the upcoming uh, hour, I thought that I would just go back to the basics and maybe talk to the people, to one person of the people who know best about this, this heartbreaking and, and backbreaking job of providing for and preparing our children. So my guest today uh, is Sarah Lehman. Welcome, Sarah, <laughs> to the show. Thanks, Leon. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I uh, so just so our listeners know, uh, Sarah Lehman is is a veteran uh, teacher at one of the best. Uh, public schools in New York City. Um, I think that in that way, Sarah, one would say that, you know, you may not be best placed to speak about this because PS321 in Park Slope, New York, is not really representative, is it, of of, of the shambles going on in the country or in New York State. Um, so I just want to make that point because uh, the, the children in, uh, in, in, at PS321 are blessed with the best teachers. They have books. They have materials. <laughs> they have a library. They have uh, dance teachers, art teachers, science teachers. They have um, heat in their classrooms. Uh, they can go to school all five days of the week. And they have parents who are so passionately and who can afford to raise um, the money to provide for their school, to tend to their education. So, um, but that does not uh, disqualify Ms. Lehman from saying something <laughs> about what she knows, what she has known for 18 years. And I don't think that that has made your, your work any easier, has it? Uh, well, it has definitely made it easier. Um, I do teach in a very unusual school. It's not only affluent, but it has a very, very strong principal who believes in a really creative education. Um, but it's it's always a challenging job in any situation. But I before I taught there, I taught high poverty kids, so I've seen both, and it definitely is much much harder um, with kids who have a lot more challenges. Okay. Can you, um, you know, I think that let's just stop for now and go on break because I don't want to interrupt your stream of, 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 of thoughts, but I do want okay. you uh, to talk a little bit when we come back, you know, about what you see as the challenges across the board, not not just, you know, in the high poverty versus uh, a school like PS21, but the state of, of elementary education these days. I mean, you must have sort of like a good sight of that. So I would like sure. to, to pick your brain about that when we come back. We'll be right back, folks. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? 
Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone, to the conversation about education, uh, educating young children. Uh, before we went into break, I was asking my guest, Sarah Lehman, about um, the what she finds, you know, to be the hardest, the most challenging thing um, in, in, in her work, in her job of educating children. Uh, so, Sarah, what, what is the thing that challenges you the most in your work? I, I think... The hardest thing is really making sure that the kids get a full, complete liberal arts education with the full range of the arts and sciences, history, science, geography, um, the whole gamut of a full curriculum, because nationally there's a lot of pressure on the schools to just raise test scores, and the tests are in math and in reading. And mm-hmm. they test a very limited number set of a very limited number of skills. And so, what's been overlooked is giving kids a really deep curriculum that's focused more on um, scientific thinking and understanding history, understanding civics, um, all the great things that were lost when the curriculum narrowed. There is a science test, 
but um, it doesn't receive much emphasis. So I think that's the big challenge is making sure the curriculum is really serving the needs of a citizenry that's actually knowledgeable, (laughs) not just preparing for a multiple choice test. Okay, so on the one hand, you have to comply, right, with 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 your job requirements, with the mandate. Well, my other- yeah, my school is very unusual in that my principal wants to teach these. She wants us to teach all these other things, um, and she's always been committed to that. And we teach a population that does well on the test, so she also has the luxury of not worrying that we're going to going to fail the test. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. nationally, what's been happening is that, especially in high-poverty schools, there are schools that have just had to spend years and years and years in the classroom doing nothing but test prep. Um, right. Teachers who just have to do this very, very narrow curriculum. And to me, the frightening thing is that kids are really taught through an excessive use of multiple-choice tests that there's a right answer and an adult knows it, and the goal in school is to find that right answer. Or to make an um, educated is, guess, right? To make an educated guess, but it's on an answer that they're told, you know, someone out there knows the answer, and their job I as see. a student is to guess the right answer, as opposed uh-huh. to what I'd like to teach them, which is you are a creator of answers. You are a creator of questions. Um, think outside the box. Think up a new question. Right. You know, the, the whole goal of of teaching very young children is to teach them creative thinking and to teach them to think on their feet and think on their own. And um, the over-reliance on multiple-choice tests and on strict rubrics and that kind of thing really, I think, threatens the whole purpose, the whole um, the whole teaching of creativity. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's been a massive reduction nationally in the amount of time young children get to play. The kindergartens have become extremely academic. There is very little, um, very little time in the classroom spent on creative play. Very, very little time nationally spent on recess, and um, it, it's very short-sighted because children need play to develop creativity. They need to be mm-hmm. thinking um, in their heads in an imaginative way at a young mm-hmm. age because there's a small window of time when they can develop that capacity. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really and, and, and short-sighted play, for us not whole, to realize that. And there is that whole social interactive dialectic thing that's going on too. It's not just sitting there staring at letters and numbers, right? You have to deal with oh, another yeah. mind. I mean, it's, it's a whole range of social, emotional, and intellectual um, stages of development that they need to go through in order to become, you know, fully, fully engaged, <laughs> functioning humans. And, you know, the other factors, of course, the massive amount of screen time that kids are exposed to now. So you can't assume that after school they're running around with a pack of friends developing any of those social skills. Um, there's so much use of screens and also a lot of kids who are, you know, in very, very structured environments because their parents have to work late. So they go from school to after school programs and there's very little time when they can just be creative, where they can just Mm -hmm. sit around and have no distraction and just play and play is extremely important for the development of the brain. Mm -hmm. 
You know, when you were talking about, and I never realized this, the thing about multiple choice test taking in that you are, in a way, subliminally, right, conditioned to think that there is one right answer out there to reach for. And I was thinking, my gosh, we are preparing them to bow to authoritarianism. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, and that's I how we end up where we are now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's quite frightening. It really is. And I think we're really seeing it with this first generation. I mean, there are kids now who have grown up like that. You know, young, young people who have spent their entire school years really feeling that there, there is an A to be gotten and it's to be gotten by getting the right answer. And when I was a kid, I, 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 I think there was more of an emphasis, at least there was in the schools I went to, that you were in school to become a creative person, that you were going to come up with answers, you were going to come up with ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, my school is very unusual because we do emphasize the creative thinking, but a lot of schools are under a lot of pressure to just raise those scores. And it's, it's a really frightening reality. That's how principals are evaluated. That's how teachers are evaluated. Um, and it's, it's just horrible in the high can, poverty schools then, because if they, excuse sorry. me. Can you encapsulate for for us then what is the message, the mandate, the implicit mandate now for going to school? If years ago it was to learn to think, right, critically, to learn to be creative thinkers, what is the the implicit point of acquiring an education now, would you say? I think it's it's absolutely economic. You pass this score. So you can get to the next grade, so you can graduate from high school, so you can go to college, so you can get a job. And that okay. is that is all of it. Rather than thinking in terms of what kind of person do we want you to develop into? Mm-hmm. What kind of person would, um, would we like you to be? And what kind of critical reasoning abilities would you have to have to be a good citizen? I mean, my parents were raised in the 30s. Well, back when civics was taught in school, and and can they, you tell those of us who were not there what 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 was civics? <laughs> well, they were they were taught that it was every citizen's responsibility to vote, and uh-huh. that you know if you were going to if you were a good American, you would vote and you would um, you would write to your congressman if there was something you were upset about, and you would be engaged. And citizens had responsibilities to be critical of their leaders and to engage with their government uh-huh. and civics, that, that basic idea that, um, that Americans have rights and responsibilities and have to be engaged in, in government as uh-huh. part of um, being a, a good citizen, that's completely been abandoned in the schools. That's not something that's on the curriculum, at least that, that I'm aware of. I mean, I know they teach, they teach about government um, in high school, but it's not, it's not embedded in the curriculum Mm-hmm. In the lower grades, the way it used to be, so the kids don't don't really get that idea that um, that democracy will not survive unless they're very engaged. I mean, democracy is an experiment. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. a very young experiment, and they I think they really need to be taught that it's on their shoulders to work to keep it going. Well, I think I hear that you you were just describing a process where, their sense of agency 
in the world as a citizen mm-hmm. and as, as as a human being in the world is completely yeah. gradually you know ruthlessly kind of cut off from them you know they don't know what they can they don't think about what they can do in the world instead they think about what they have to do to get that gray or what they can do to children to participate yeah there's so many elements i mean there's there's the political element you want them to be engaged citizens and there's just the emotional element. You want them to be engaged emotionally in learning and intellectually engaged. There's so much that you really need to do in the very early grades to get mm-hmm. them engaged in, in critical thinking, in um, thinking based on um, reasoning. There's so much you need to do in the early grades because by high school, you can't just come in and say, oh, yeah, by the way, you should be a good citizen. You have to really get the engagement early mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And if, mm-hmm. if the curriculum is all about testing very basic skills, the kids aren't going to find anything interesting in it, and they're not going to engage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the quality of the test is also a terrible issue. I mean, the, the quality of the test is a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Who makes up these tests? Uh, well, I don't know any state who does. In our state, it's a private company. I mean, I think it's private companies all over. Um, and that's, that is a, a whole question is, um, you know, how much money is being spent on private testing companies when it's really not that hard to tell if a kid can read, to tell if a kid can do math. And I, I think it's fascinating that the teachers who, um, you know, are paid very little and are usually women. Mm-hmm. Um, are not trusted to tell the authorities who can't read who needs help. Instead, mm-hmm. we give the money to private corporations um, that make a lot of money coming in and telling right. people right. who can't read. Um, you know, it's the teachers. The teachers can tell, and and many parents can tell as well. I mean, not all of them, but you know, it's um, it's kind of amazing that teachers are not trusted. Um, now, yeah. also, I, I noticed I was, I was looking uh, through my daughter's um, what do you call it testing book. They had a whole round, right? A few, a couple of months ago, in the reading test, the, the, the excerpts, the literature samples, I think do reflect something as well of the changing times of of, of whoever is up there out there thinks about what constitutes literature. Well, there, I don't. I don't think they're really thinking too much about what constitutes great literature. <laughs> they, there's, um, there's a great book written by Diane Ravitch years ago called, I think it was The Language Police. It's a, a thin book. It was, if you're interested in that topic, I highly recommend okay. it to your, your listeners because it is a, a fantastic story of what actually um, has happened to... <laughs> To the, the literature choices in the schools, basically their pressure from the right and from the left has completely mm-hmm. limited what is read in most classrooms. From the left, you got a lot of um, limits on what kind of literature could be read because nothing could have any stereotype. You couldn't have a mother in the kitchen because mm. um, that's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. You can have an Irish cop because that's a stereotype. You know, you couldn't have anything that, that connotes... Um, Kind of stereotype, like um, African American child in an urban setting. 
know. Oh my so, God! So what does that? Where does that yeah, leave so us? Extreme, right? So you know, really extreme, extreme ideas of what's verboten from the left, and then on the right, really extreme ideas of what's verboten on the right. Like um, you can't have uh, family conflict, you know, where where children are. Um, being obnoxious to their parents, you know, they should be respectful mm. and you don't want stuff about Halloween because, you know, maybe <laughs> that doesn't fly. So there's there's a lot written about the kind of censorship that goes on um, in schools, well, in the literature that gets into tests, but also in schools that rely on textbooks. My school doesn't use literature textbooks, but the mm-hmm. kinds of stories that get into school reading textbooks are so heavily policed by all the powers to be on both the right and the left, that you end up with ridiculously boring drivel. Right. It's not a right. question of, you know, what story is going to turn on children onto literature, what stories are deeply meaningful and what they'll remember the rest of their lives. So it, it's really interesting how, how much heavy-handedness has worked to destroy the literature that children get exposed to in school. It's pretty amazing. Well, you know, not just destroy literature, but gosh, it, it's just, I'm just thinking about what does it say about what, what we're doing to their minds, what we're thinking about how their what would help their minds develop? Like they shouldn't be disturbed. They shouldn't be provoked, right? Their imagination should not be excited. They should not be thrown into a, discom- a, a, a zone of, of, um, of imagination and of discomfort, Right. It's so interesting because, of course, you know, what is exciting to anyone is, is, um, is on some level a tiny bit, a tiny bit disturbing, right? So no committee will ever choose the best literature, right? No, no committee will ever agree on something that is the best art, right? It's, mm-hmm. that's why the best schools give enough autonomy to teachers where they can, they can actually expose children to great literature and great art, and um, they won't just work from textbooks. They won't work from test prep books. All this mass-produced stuff that is just produced um, just to pass the litmus test to whatever committee is approving the materials, that's the worst possible stuff. You know, that's why my school is great, because they let them read real books. We take them to museums, um, and not, not every teacher is um, encouraged to do that, and not every not every school has the resources to do that. That's true. So it's great yeah. in the districts that do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, let's take a break for now, and when we come back, uh, I would like to ask you to speak a little bit about math, then, because we have we've been talking about literature mostly. So we'll be right back, folks. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world. 
across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Okay, we are back with Sarah Lehman. Right before the break, we were talking about uh, the decline in literature. Uh, But I want to ask you, Sarah, to say something about uh, science and math and whether you see, what kind of trend do you see in that that department? Well, I, I am actually encouraged by the new Common Core Standards that have come out in math. Um, I think they are trying to raise the level of the curriculum because America's competency in math is really low compared to um, the other nations we're competing with economically. Um, But a big issue in the United States is that we can't seem to pay teachers enough to keep math and science teachers in the classroom. There's an extremely um, high attrition rate of teachers, and math teachers and science teachers, particularly physics teachers, are very hard to get. Um, mm-hmm. And teachers... Because, because who, they are being poached by the private industries, yeah, right? Yeah, if, you, if okay. you graduate from college with a degree in math, you can get a much higher, much, much, much higher paying job. Anyone who graduates from college with competency in physics and Mm -hmm. or computer science or math, their their um, yeah their job opportunities are much greater um, than they than they would get in the classroom. And our country does not want to face that. We are not attracting the best and the brightest into teaching. 
Um, and it's, it's tricky because the left doesn't really want to talk about that because they don't insult teachers. Um, but um, the profession really needs, really needs people who are highly qualified. Um, and in the elementary school level, the Common Core curriculum has challenging math, and there are a lot of teachers that need a lot of support in teaching it because the average um, skill set of the average American, including teachers, is not strong in math. And we, it's, it's really a national crisis, and it's, it's not getting the press it needs. It's not getting the attention it needs, and there's, there's no amount of money you can pour into um, to later years. You know, you can pour into colleges to try to make up that gap. We have huge numbers of kids entering college and having to take remedial math. They, you know, they graduate from high school and they can't do basic math. And it's it's really a ma- matter of putting putting the money into attracting really top notch math people in the elementary years. Well, I didn't know about this. I, I knew about the low literacy rate. You know that that graduate. You can graduate from high school and not know how to write an essay, but I didn't know about this crisis with with math. Um, now you are appointed master fellow of an organization called Math for America. Can, can you what what is that? What do they do? So Math for America was founded by a philanthropist mathematician, mm-hmm. um, Jim Simons, who. It's basically a wonderful experiment of actually supporting math and science teachers. He has um, fellowships. They have fellowships that they give to um, math and science teachers that um, support them and try to keep exemplary teachers in the classroom. That's their goal is just to keep them in the classroom because Mm -hmm. what happens is we get tons of new teachers every year, but they leave. They leave because the job is so hard, um, particularly in urban schools. Um, you know, I teach in New York City where the cost of living is so high. And you get a lot of young people who, you know, are really idealistic and they want to save the world and they want to contribute and they want to be teachers. And then the reality hits them that they can't afford to raise a family in the city and they quit. Um, mm-hmm. So Math for America is doing really important work in trying to retain good teachers in the profession. Um, and this is you know, nationwide. It, it, this this organization would advocate on a nationwide level, not just New York State. Well, they they advocate for supporting teachers nationally. They um, they're centered in New York. They have a few other um, locations as well, mm-hmm. but it began in New York. Um, and I think you know it's it, they're really looking at the effect of what that does for teachers. If you take math and science teachers and you give them adequate support and you give them stipends to supplement their salaries, um, Mm -hmm. does that have an effect? Um, Because, you know, it's amazing to me that people expect that we're going to be able to raise kids who can compete in an economy that requires math skills without investing in math education. It's just... (laughs) <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, uh-huh. you know, we are so far behind China. We're so far behind Singapore and Japan and South Korea. And um, the level of math that we teach is astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Um, and, you know, our, our elementary school kids just are not getting what they're getting um, in countries that are willing to invest in math education. 
and mm-hmm. science. I mean, science, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's under so stress you, as well. So are you and, saying that if slowly our economy and competitiveness in a global marketplace, if that's crumbling, are you saying that it's not because of these godforsaken immigrants, but it's because of our <laughs> education system? <laughs> Yes, I don't actually think the immigrants are doing anything wrong for them. You know, it, it is rather amazing. Um, well, you know, the thing is, you know, we have we have a booming, booming, booming job market mm-hmm. for engineers. Mm-hmm. For engineers, um, and and we're just not producing engineers. I mean, we're having to get well-educated immigrant engineers to fill those jobs because we do not produce enough people who study engineering. Yeah. Um, I was just explaining this to my class the other day. I, I was talking about engineering. I said, hey, guys, you know, if you want a job, be an engineer. Um, because it, it's it, and it's an interesting question, actually, why we're not producing engineers. My son got an engineering degree, so I went through this with him and realized, you know, if you want to be an engineer, you really have to decide by your senior year in high school because you have to apply to engineering schools. It's a whole separate kind of um bachelor's degree. And so unless you're really telling children about this option of being an engineer and preparing them for it in high school, mm-hmm. how will they know? It's not like they can get to college and then sign up. They have to actually know when they are applying to colleges in fall of the senior year. So the fact that we don't, we don't educate kids about that enough is, um, it's, it's really a national crisis and, you know, the level of, of technology people were right. producing. But it's also scary the fact that then uh, children are expected to know, to decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives and to know yeah. how, what to prepare for by the time they're 16, 17. And that also forecloses the whole business of creativity and free thinking that you were talking about before. Well, you know, and I think, I mean, I think that is a hard question, but I also think there should be so much more done in the elementary and high school years that gives them a very rich curriculum full of literature and art and history so that they, the real foundation of a liberal arts education, I believe should occur in the first 12 years. I don't think you should have to go to college to learn about history or science or art. Right. There should be history and science and art through, you know, in the elementary and middle and high school years. But there mm-hmm. isn't. There is, you know, ch- American kids don't know about history, and they they think the Revolutionary War is ancient history. They don't know mm-hmm. about ancient civilizations. They don't know about the Middle Ages. They are so ill-equipped to understand their own place in history, um, and that's a recent phenomenon. That's since the '60s that kids have not been taught history much, um, and it's it's what, it's a great what about loss. geography? Oh, geography, yeah. I mean, you know, forget it. They don't. <laughs> You know, the average American can't find, you know, a country on a map. But I think, you know, with geography, you know, just being able to know where places are, at least, you know, now they'll have Google Maps to find it. But but the, the big questions in geography, you know, are are super important. You know, how how um, how does, you know, land affect people, how do resources affect people, all, right. all this rich curriculum that is so essential to expose kids to early on. Right. You know, the, the big right. questions of history, what happened, and science. All this stuff, you can't really spend the first six years just doing test prep and then hope they become scientists um, and engage citizens later on. It has to be something that starts early because that's when your passions are built. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you become excited about science when you're when you're seven. You become science, you know, excited about history. You know, you go to a museum when you're nine. You know, it's not something you just wake up at eighteen and say, "Oh, I, I really would like to know how the world began. I'd like to I'd like to learn about <laughs> right. you right, know right. science. It doesn't happen like that." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you wake up at 18, you have to think about, you know, which student loan you can secure um, and, and what school yeah. you can get into with your <laughs> SAT score. But um, so you you, t- you see the, the way things trend and you're still doing it. What? <laughs> Aren't you burned out? What? No, don't answer that question. Um, let me just rephrase it. You know, what do you see that that keeps you going? What What do you see that maybe? Let, let's say we're ending the school year this week. What do you see in your in your kids that gives you um, that gratifies you? Well, I I teach um, as I said in the most unusual environment. I teach in in really the ideal conditions to be a teacher. I have. A super supportive school community. I have a teach. I have a principal who trusts teachers to make decisions. She involves teachers in collective decision making. And I think, you know, when I hear about the the horrible situations that teachers are going through in so many places, you know, not just in Oklahoma, but um, in any school in which the principals don't give them enough autonomy to make the job exciting and fun. I mean, I still love my job and I've, I've been at the school for um, 17 years and I taught four years before that another public school. I still love it because I, I have um, the freedom to make it a mm-hmm. really, really rich and interesting curriculum. And I just mm-hmm. wish other teachers and other schools that that was the norm because mm-hmm. in most schools, you are really um, not respected. I mean, you know, that, that, is, that is the word on the street is that most teachers nationally just feel so depleted by the national conversation that, that um, just blames teachers for everything. They're blamed mm-hmm. for, you know, poverty, for, um, <laughs> for acting out, for drug use, for delinquency. Every, mm-hmm. Everything. And, um, you know, there have been huge changes in our social structure that really affect children. And, you know, to me, what makes my job really fun is that I get to be a, a you know, nurturing young kids. And I, you know, I, I love hanging out with kids. I love, um, you know, I was the kind of kid who had, you know, 40 stuffed animals. I, I love little kids and just mm-hmm. being with them. But if you look at how our society values women who stay home with their children or people like me who spend all day with children. We are the low people on the social ladder. It is Mm -hmm. not a high status job. And it's, it's an interesting question. Um, You know, the feminist movement, um, you know, looked at the role of women in the home and, um, and the isolation of mothers alone in the home and, talked about how hard that was. Um, but what's happened is now there aren't a lot of people spending time with kids at mm. home. Um, mm. And mm-hmm. a lot of that mm-hmm. burden falls on, falls on the teachers because when kids right. are not, they're not having family dinners with their families, they're not having a lot of time with their families, the teachers, the teachers, you know, have to absorb that. They have to spend yeah. more time in the classroom just working on basic 
nurturing right. and social skills and all of that. Now, you, so, you were talking about then the devaluation of women, of mothers. But I think in, in doing that, you're also pointing out implicitly the devaluation or the, at least the negligence towards children. Right, that we don't think hard enough about how to tend to them. We, but we don't. You know, I, I want think, to ask I this, think this question. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, I think I think it's very much a feminist issue. I think I think um, you know the fate of how we treat children and the fate of how we treat women are very much intertwined. And I think it's up to women and feminists to really define um, the importance of time spent with children in a positive way and to fight for that and to really, um, you know, continue to fight for more childcare leave and to fight for flexible work hours and to, to fight for whatever needs to be done so that families can spend more time with their kids. Exactly. And I, I thank you for saying that as we're ending, because it brings us back full circle to what I was trying to, 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 to say before, you know, about all the hysteria, you know, about every time that Trump does something really mean spirited, uh, all that hysteria really takes us away from these fundamental neglects that are going on in terms of, for example, this country does not have mandatory maternity leave. For example, you know, but Sarah, we, we have about just one minute left. Can you tell us one thing that you notice in your children, one thing that we can count on, one thing that 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 is unbroken or unbreakable in them, just so we can just, you know, so I can sleep tonight? <laughs> oh, children are so happy on so many levels. Children have so much joy that it's just, it just runs through their veins. They are are just so full of wonder and laughter. I mean, I, I think I have the, the greatest job in the world because I am with the people who have that spark. They, they, they have creative spark running through their veins. That's how children are. And, um, you know, to anyone listening who hasn't spent time with a child lately, I encourage you to do so because they, they're a ton of fun and summer's coming. So all the yes. parents out there will have more time with their kids. So I hope they enjoy them. Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving us that, that, that precious reminder of the precious resource that we have uh, right at the tip of our fingers, right at the corner at the playground in the schoolyard. So um, I wish you a great summer, Sarah, and may you be replenished <laughs> before you go back in September and uh, get back, you know, into the line of duty. And for all of you out there, I also wish you a lot, a lot of joy. And may you do something that would remind you of what it's like to be a child. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.